0: Hello my name is Samuel Browning and today I will be presenting my synthesis paper number two in which I will be synthesizing the course material over the past several weeks. And so the first piece of content I will be talking about is diversity and inclusion. According to the lecture, diversity has many definitions and interpretations, however, it primarily has to do with differences and variations among people. Inclusion, according to the Norhouse, is the process of incorporating individuals into a group or organization through creating an environment where people who are different feel like they are a whole. The similarity between the two is that to be inclusive of all individuals, well, one must first treat others as individuals, which means to see someone in the infinite number of ways in which they are diverse. Thus. Diversity and inclusion must go hand-in-hand. However, inclusion does not work if one arbitrarily selects certain intersections to identify how people are diverse. By cherry-picking certain intersections such as race and gender, one is no longer treating a person as a whole individual despite their quasi-diversity outlook on the other hand the two are different because diversity implies looking at people individually while inclusion implies unifying people as a whole so these are two different things however as i mentioned before they can work together and should work together to use diversity and inclusion and in leadership i think means to treat others as individuals and exclude them only based on the content of their character. The reality is that everyone can't be a part of the starting 11. To use soccer terminology, starting 11 is the starting 11 players. Not everybody can be included in this very select group of people. The problem with inclusion is that it establishes no boundary in which the wheat can be separated from the chaff. This is why the striving for a meritocracy is needed to balance diversity and inclusion, in my opinion. So even though people are diverse and no one should be excluded based on their innate individuality, there should still be an ethic in which people should be rewarded for exemplifying. The next piece of content in which I will be presenting and talking about is collaboration. In recent years, collaboration is considered a top six competency. According to the lecture, quote, collaboration is a process of developing common vision, goals, and purpose. It is when the members of the group share responsibility, authority, and accountability in developing solutions and accomplishing goals. Collaboration is not the same as competition or cooperation even though they can be used uh, similarly in a colloquial manner. It It is difficult to differentiate between them unless I think they're described in different scenarios, or they're described using different scenarios. So in the context of research, competition is when two research labs are racing to create, let's say, a vaccine. The lab who makes it first will likely have a monopoly on the product. Therefore, the incentive is very motivating. Cooperation is when the researchers within the research labs are given instructions and goals by the primary investigator. In order to work together in accordance to their, in accordance to their boss, they must cooperate. Cooperation turns into collaboration when there is no common authority when there is no boss telling uh, your group what to do or dictating what you guys do, what the goal is. So in the, in the research context, uh, collaboration would be when two primary investigators uh, come in contact with one another and agree to conduct a, a project together with a common goal. Collaboration is heavily reliant on the individual. There's no one telling you what to do or what to accomplish, so each collaborator, in the context I provided, each primary investigator must bring a relevant and competent perspective to the table, or else what's the point of collaborating? This requires the three C's uh, to connect it back to, to class material of individual value, which are commitment, congruence, and consciousness of self. Uh, because in order to bring something valuable to the table, one must know themselves uh, to think of a unique idea, act on that idea, and then commit to it. This is important because on, and the collaborators will likely try to question the idea until it convinces them. Therefore, the individual must be strong in order to be a collaborator. Alright, The next topic I will discuss is servant leadership. Servant leadership is defined by Robert Greenleaf as, quote, the natural feeling that one wants to serve, to serve first. Then conscious choice brings one to aspire to lead. End of quote. So it's not that servant leaders are servants first. Or I should say, it's not only that servant leaders are servants first. I'd argue all leaders to be servants in some type of way first i just can't get around that unless you're the next in line of a of a monarchy even then i assume you still have to go through some training you have to submit yourself to some discipline so it's not only that servant leaders are servants first i think it's that servant leaders approach the world with serving as the primary drive which is different than someone approaching the world with power and personal success and pleasure as the primary drive. The world-renowned author and moral philosopher Leo Tolstoy was a man of fame, wealth, and career success. However, late in his life, these distractions were not enough to provide sufficient meaning in his life. He was on the brink of suicide when he realized that he, that ignoring the question of death, losing oneself in the pleasures of life, cowardly clinging on to life, and or having the, as he calls it, courage to take one's own life in defiance of the tragedy that life brings were all not proper ways of dealing with this fundamental problem of our finitude. Then, through comparing the educated elite to the working class, Tolstoy discovered that the latter had no doubt about life's meaning. Fully aware of trying not to romanticize the working class and and neglect their true hardships, he realized that the well-educated upper class was in fact too reasonable to allow themselves to have faith beyond the physical. This implied to him that the educated class was in fact too rational to live a meaningful life. To Tolstoy, what the working class had that the educated class didn't was faith in the the service of an infinite being in this case, or in his case. And I think this is the case, fundamentally. This led Tolstoy to a life of service and justice it was in fact a very early champion of peaceful protesting which even inspired Gandhi himself which was proven which who was proven to be in direct correspondence with tolstoy servant leadership builds a constructive climate because it produces individuals with a sense of robust meaning to their lives without faith and service i think that one would have to resort to one of the four other sources of meaning described by Tolstoy Ignorance, personal pleasure, suicide, and cowardice To my estimation, none of these seem constructive for society which is why servant leadership, I think, is exceptionally important for our society The next piece of information I will be discussing is common purpose. According to the lecture, common purpose means to work with others within a shared set of aims and values. Thus, collaboration cannot happen if there is not an agreed end in mind and agreed core values that must be accepted a priori by everyone. Why? Well, if there is no cohesive story about why the group is together in the first place, then why would a, I or another person put up with the other person and who disagrees with my ideas? If we're not headed in the same direction and you disagree with me, there's, there's no reason why I would not simply turn my back to you and walk away. However, if we all have agreed that we're aiming to make let's say, the world a better place, then maybe we'll be more able to listen to each other's approaches and opinions towards this shared aim. So, in the case of the two primary investigators that I mentioned bre- and before my example of collaboration, if the reason why the two primary investigators are collaborating isn't deep, then we may distrust each other. So sure, we're both trying to make this scientific discovery of a, let's say, a vaccine. But what will the implications be for society? Will it make the world a better place? Or will this be a purely personal economic pursuit? I have a feeling if these two deep fundamental intentions aren't shared, then collaboration is going to be difficult but what about shared what about a shared means to the end well certainly both primary investigators don't necessarily have to have the same idea how to accomplish this agreed end in mind however i suspect that there must be a shared value system in place that is a, that is that ties together this process towards this end. Like, what if one of the primary investigators isn't is okay with simply falsifying data, leaving select samples out, or you know, even plugging in just brand new data out of the blue? What if one of them is okay with this? Well, obviously, this would probably encroach on an, a very important value that is. Probably integrity therefore the other investigator will likely not want to collaborate anymore even though they have a shared goal in mind Okay, and so the last piece of information from the lectures in which I will be talking about is the the five dysfunctions of a team by Patrick Lencioni and also what makes an ideal team player? and so to start off with the five dysfunctions of a team basically what it um, it's a list of five fundamental ways in which a team can disband and dissociate and become ineffective, and they're they're listed in a hierarchical manner. And so, at the very bottom of the hierarchy of of the five dysfunctions of a team is the absence of trust. Like I mentioned, and when I talked about collaboration the trust between two individuals is key for any team or organization to thrive or else what what is keeping me there to listen to your opinion or idea that likely contradicts with my opinion or idea if i don't trust you then then that interaction will never even happen in the beginning the next on the next tier of the hierarchy is a fear of conflict okay so i trust you but i'm too afraid to have my ideas challenged i'm too afraid to challenge your ideas and thus i'm just not gonna even try to to argue yes yeah, so i'm not even going to try to argue i'm not tr- I'm going to try to cause conflict out of fear and this may seem like oh very harmonious, but what happens when it's time to to come up with a, a product, uh, an, an end goal? Well, I, I was too afraid to express my ideas, and I was too afraid to challenge my my teammates' ideas, and so likely the likelihood of the product being uh, worthy of, enough for Success is, is very small, I think, and so the next um, on the next tier of the hierarchy is a lack of commitment. So you know, there's this, you know, there's there's a there's trust, and there's not people are are free and and feel free to to share their opinions and to argue with one another without without getting too emotional. However. W- What's the point of all this if 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 this process doesn't doesn't last for a certain amount of time or for an extended amount of time if people aren't committed to it then then these this these interactions are going to be meaningless in the end and so that that brings us to the next tier of the hierarchy which is avoidance of accountability and so you may have people committed to the the team however. If you don't have people pulling their weight, then more than likely you'll have a couple people pulling the majority of the weight and feeling as if the standards are just super low and, and you know they, they're just way above the standard and thus they should just leave. And once the highly productive people leave, then the highly unproductive people uh, will just remain to falter and to fail and then this leads us to the very last to the to the peak of the hierarchy which is an inattention to results so so you have people accountable but but what happens when the results are not what you intended to be or what happens when the results make you stagnant and complacent um, and so this inattention to results is very important i mean is very is a way in which a team can be dysfunctional and so what makes an ideal team player well according to the lecture there are three facets um there's humility hunger and uh, i guess Intellect, And so an ideal team player is an amalgamation, is a healthy balance of these three facets. And so if, if one is only smart and humble, then they could be seen as just the, the lovable, caring uh, slacker who doesn't pull his, his weight and who has all this potential but doesn't live up to it. Now, if someone is smart and hungry only, then this is someone who is a skillful politician. In its most extreme pathological form, it's the it's the uh, abusive sociopath. That's uh, I suppose someone who's very intelligent, very hungry, but lacks that humility to check themselves and to just to. I guess have this servant leadership mentality, and now if someone's hungry and humble, then you know they're 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 driven, they're humble. However, since they lack the the ability to to see to plan for the future to be orderly, to be conscientious, they may accidentally run into several um, snake holes and find themselves in a mess, which is not good. Now, so the ideal team player would be healthy balance, like I said, of all three of these traits. And what I'm curious about is the process in which one becomes this ideal team player. Now, of course, this ideal team player may not be actually achievable, but the process in which one does to, goes through to strive to it, I suspect it's something as along the lines of what Carl Jung would, would call circumambulation. So what that means is that you have a fixed set point, and you start here. And you're, let's say you're very smart, and you, but you want to be more humble, so you become more humble. But then you realize you're lacking hunger, so you become uh, less smart, you remain humble, but try to become more hungry. And then, but you realize, oh wait, I'm lacking intelligence and self-control, and and, and yeah, all that. And so you you kind of bounce back and forth between these these uh, facets until you kind of have a good sense of how much of each one you should use in certain situations and certain times of your life. And so. You're constantly moving uh, in between these three facets and that's how I theorize how this process of becoming an ideal team player actually will work. And so how they both connect to leadership and the social change model. Well, social change model has three levels. It's the individual, group, and societal, societal level. So how a team can be functional and how you can be an ideal team player within that team i think it's obvious how it connects to the social change model and leadership Uh, i hope you enjoyed my synthesis paper number two and yeah have a great night and goodbye